Welcome to episode 178 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Sarah Jackson. What? What? What are we doing? This is... Interference. Interference. Best of 2016, which was a terrible year, but a great year for our guests. Holy shit, we had some awesome ones. Mm Mm-hmm. Super, super thankful for everyone that came and spent an hour with us. It was very, very meaningful to us. So the three of us have been now recording and producing this podcast for two years. Jeez, two, two years. years. Cheers, you guys. I don't have a drink. Clink. They don't You're drinking them. water. He's <laughs> drinking out of an aluminum can. <laughs> Brian, you were drinking out of an aluminum can. Yeah. For those that don't know, Sarah <laughs> is our... Alert. Our awesome producer that has made design details possible. Yeah, for... she's been on this show like twice. Yeah, yeah if they but, don't but know twice. her by now, that's on twice. No, 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 no. Maybe this is someone's first episode mm. they've ever listened to. Weird choice. Weird choice. <laughs> no, it's a great Actually, choice it's, because it's they a, get little snippets of the entire this is, year. This yeah. is our new user experience flow. Yeah, this is a, a sampler. <laughs> uh, we're calling it the best of 2016, uh, which, which doesn't mean to say that the ones not the episodes we feature uh, that we didn't feature are the worst. Um, just statistically, these no big deal. Uh, we wanted to just plot some clips that stood out to the three of us over yeah. the past year from some of the awesome guests we've had on the show. Uh, how many episodes did we do this year? A hundred, uh, eighty, a whole bunch. We did over eighty episodes this year, something like that. Yeah, and we can only take what twenty-four. Yeah, and we yeah. we narrowed it down to twenty-four clips, twenty-three clips. We tried to get down to three episodes, yeah. and based on last year, that's about three episodes. Yeah. So uh, the best of 2016 is a chance for us to, to, to really highlight some of the, the moments that we remembered and also give us a chance to take a break going into the holidays. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be playing these best ofs. Since January 4th of last year, which includes best of 2015, to be clear, we've done 90 episodes. Ooh, that's so well, many episodes. 88 so if you've listened to those 90, here are some of our favorite clips uh, in this Best of 2016 episode one. If you're new to the podcast, here's a little sampler. And we definitely recommend going back and checking out the full conversations because uh, everyone we've had on the show has been awesome. Before we get into the clips, we want to give a huge, huge shout out and thank you to Wayno for making this Who episode possible. sponsored us the entire year, I think. Pretty um, much. Basically, yeah. Basically the entire year. Wayno. You made this possible. Heavy this hitters. whole year. Like literally, like anytime there's a sponsor, Wayno is included in that, I'm pretty sure. So thank you to Wayno for making this whole year possible. We couldn't have done it without you. Wayno is a full service digital agency here in San Francisco, also with offices in New York and Reykjavik. They are building beautiful digital product experiences for brands and people like you. Uh, they've been working with companies like Red Bull and Zero, Lonely Planet, Reuters, Jelly, back in the day Google Santa Tracker and on and on they're some of our favorite people uh, we've had them many of their teammates on our show before uh, and they've been helping us produce this podcast for for so long we're really really thankful Hallie was part of our first live episode too yeah and they invited us to, to like come speak at their happy hour and everything like they've been very very gracious to us so why do they sponsor the show they're not trying to sell you anything uh, they just want you to check out their work Go to their website. That's wayno.co. You should follow them on Twitter, on Instagram. They are just a rad group of designers that you can learn from, be inspired by. The case studies on their website are phenomenal. They're dribble, gorgeous. Uh, and if you need some laughs and honesty, their Twitter account. 
is is always entertaining. It is fantastic. Of course, if you're looking for jobs, they're also hiring product designers in New York City, as well as here in San Francisco. And if you are just getting into the design space and you want an internship, they are looking for design interns here in San Francisco for 2017. If that sounds interesting, go to their website, ueno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. Uh, just scroll to the bottom and you'll see all the job listings there. So thank you again to Ueno for sponsoring this week and a bunch of previous weeks of design details. And with that, let's get into the first clip from episode 118, the Helena Price TM featuring Helena Price. And I really love this clip because one, Helena is a very inspiring person in general, but two, in this clip, she talks a lot about the secret sauce um, to success and making it in San Francisco. And those are really hard things. So without, I don't want to talk about without it anymore. Further ado. Yeah, without further ado, let's let her talk I'm about it. I'm sick of the ado. Let's just get rid of the ado. <laughs> let's just let her talk. We'll just let her talk. Here's Helena Price. Um, the city is crazy. It was tough. It was tough. I, I don't know. I mean, Why? I don't know if I could do it. I, I don't think I would have survived if I was going through this in 2016 San Francisco. Oh, totally. What was... What That'd was be go- impossible. <laughs> what was going through your head at the time, though? Why was... Like, there was, must have been something that said this is worth it. This is worth the pain, right? Well, I didn't know that there was anything else as an option. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, I found my career. Like, oh my God, I have a job in tech. Like anything can happen here like you anybody can be anything here so i'm it's gonna like a work. series of bets right like yeah it's just like well i'm gonna work my ass off and i'm gonna make this work you know like i'm gonna work super super hard at this job but i'm also gonna work super super hard after work to get the next job better totally and then do that job really well but also spend all of your nights and weekends doing work towards whatever that next job is gonna be and so my whole life was my career. Like everything was my career the time I worked in tech. And so there's no time for photos, you know? When did that change? Um, in 2013, I realized that I was working yet another job that didn't make me happy. And so I set a New Year's resolution to do a thing that makes me happy on the weekends. That thing was taking photos. And the idea was I would shoot so much on the weekends that I would have photos to edit every night after work. So I could have a really shitty day at work and then get home and edit photos and then the day would be good. And then I barfed out thousands and thousands of photos like immediately. And then by April, I quit my job and became a photographer. When did you first get paid for taking a photo? Um, That's a very important detail because I did not believe even like two weeks before I quit my job to be a photographer that I could be a photographer for a living. So can can I briefly pull back like half a step? Yes. You started uh, New Year's resolution. Yeah. And by April. Yes. So you did four months of every night editing photos. Yes. Probably for hours and hours at a time. Yeah. This is something I come across a lot where it's like people are like, I work really hard at my day job. I want to move to San Francisco. I'm like, yeah, you got to spend all your time. Like my little brother is a good example of this. Good kid. Super smart. He's unreasonably smart. He's like, nah, I want to hang out with friends. I'm like, that's not going to, that's not going to fly here. You can't do that. And it's a, it's a weird problem to have. You have to just have this obsessive personality. I was just talking to someone about this last night of like the secret sauce to being successful. It's not that mysterious. It's like working your ass off. 
It's just working your ass off. You have to become obsessed with it, whatever it is. You just work all the like I I met one of my neighbors in the elevator the other day for the first time, this like random guy. And he was like, so what do you, where do you go out around here? And I was like, I just work. And he's like, you don't go out? And I was like, no. And no, he just kind of no, looked at me in silence. And I was like, OK, nice to meet you. I know I'm not cool right now. I'm sorry, but I literally just work. That's how it is to like do things here or like function in the San Francisco environment. Like well, I, especially now, it's like, I I mean, maybe it, it's probably not this case for everyone, but like, I just can't even imagine not constantly working with a constant sense of desperation. Exactly. To totally. Like, And I, I think that stems from my years of actually feeling that true desperation <laughs> the, of like, yeah. if I don't, con- if I don't work my ass off every single second, then I'm not going to ever make more than $40,000 a year or I'm going to lose this job Absolutely. and I'm never I'm going to have to go home to North Carolina or something um, and, and that, I, that's I the still worst have it is losing San Francisco yeah it just it wasn't an option it just wasn't an option totally. um, and so yeah for me it's that sense of desperation just like will not subside and it I feel like that's probably a blessing because it keeps me working really hard uh I'm not saying but that's it, how it should be with yeah, everyone. Is is it a good thing? Oh, I don't know. I'm, it's probably but also, highly unhealthy. But also, I don't think it's something like I don't think it's a thing that you necessarily choose to have. Like, I don't think you can just choose to feel desperation. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't recommend it because I wouldn't even know <laughs> but, how to. But it doesn't matter because I wouldn't know how to teach it. Yeah, you know, desperation semicolon not ideal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at the core of it, like whatever personality traits that you have, positive positive or negative like if you can channel that in a good productive way then awesome if that's a sense of desperation and a fear of being homeless if you can channel that into working your butt off awesome if you want to like totally piss off your ex-boyfriends and can channel that into working your butt off great like whatever your motivations are whether they're negative or positive like if you can channel that towards growth awesome totally mine was proving my parents wrong yeah it's gonna be a failure after i dropped out of college yeah yeah, it's, I mean, it's weird. It, th- these things that fuel you, yeah, in just the most probably self harmful ways. I, but this what's isn't super self harmful? What's striking me about you is you did it for so long, doing something that it doesn't sound like you totally enjoyed. Or do, did I miss that? That you actually maybe enjoyed some of the communications PR. Um, I enjoyed parts of it. I mean, I, I remember my requirements for my work were I wanted to work with people that were smart and nice. I wanted like I wanted to enjoy who I was working with. I wanted to be in an environment where I was constantly challenged and forced to learn new things. Cause definitely like learning stuff period is very I enjoy that a lot, whatever it is. And I wanted to feel like my work was meaningful. So definitely those jobs had the the ability to check all those boxes in different ways. But it just wasn't right. Next up, we have a clip from Daniel Burka. He was uh, our guest on episode 100 almost a year ago. Holy shit, man. Uh, In this clip, he talks about critique and holding punches from other designers, which is a fascinating topic and something that uh, I think a lot of people struggle with. Uh, So let's get into that with Daniel Burka. We see a a bunch of problems with critique, the way it's done in in organizations. The, The first one is that designers frequently don't describe what problem they're trying to solve. 
They're just like, hey, you know, there's this thing. Mm-hmm. I designed a new homepage. And you're like, well, why the fuck are you designing a new homepage? <laughs> like, what are you trying to achieve? How are you going to measure that thing? And uh, it's really, I think, troubling that a lot of designers can't answer that question. And they'll be like, oh, we're just, we just wanted to do a refresh. And you're like, it could be prettier. What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Like, what, I don't even know what refresh means anymore. Um, so that's a real big problem is like, you don't fundamentally know why you're doing it. Um, and then the other one is designers don't, you know, either spend tons of time selling their idea or they don't tell you what kind of feedback they want. So early on in a project, you don't want any comments about what color the button is. Mm-hmm. You want to know, like, am I fundamentally designing the right thing? And if you don't ask people to ignore certain things and to focus on other things, they'll just give you scattershot feedback, and it's really, really, you know, um, distracting. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this feedback that, oh, you know, no, don't worry about it. I, I'm actually, you know, it doesn't matter if it says download now or or something else. I was going to work with the copywriter later, right? Well, you need to make that really clear at the outset. Yeah. And then the other one is that you need to make it clear what phase you're at. If you're at the end phase of a project, it's not useful in the critique to talk about like kind of are you fundamentally doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Unless somebody's like ready to pull the ripcord and pull a veto on it, like that's just a distraction. It's super super frustrating at the end of a project and somebody throws, you know, a giant rock and things and is like, "Oh, should we even be doing this?" And you're like, "Listen, like if you really thought that, like we should have talked about this a long time ago or like you should know how disruptive this is going to be." So people need to know that, like, oh, now's the time to focus on the details. Are the colors right? Is the alignment right? You know, am I doing the right things? So I think that's a big problem. And then the other one is I think designers pulling their punches with each other. The thing I've learned is that it's respectful to people to be honest with them. If you go in there and you hedge your bets and you're like, oh, you know, you tried real hard here and there's so much to like about this. When there's nothing to like, you're really just you know, blowing smoke up their ass. And like, I don't think, I think designers respect, uh, deserve more than that. I think a designer, if you can, you know, work with them and say, listen, like, I know you've been working really hard on this, but I think fundamentally there's still a lot of problems here and you start, you know, rationally explaining what they are. And then the next time when you work with them and they bring you something that's actually really good, they'll know you're fucking telling them the truth. When you're like, oh, this is great. I have nothing to tell you about this. They'll be like, whoa, last time, like, total hard ass and this time like everything's smooth you're being honest mm-hmm. you're being direct and you know I, I heard a, a really famous designer in the Bay Area one, I won't name drop because that would be that would be terrible uncouth <laughs> but this big designer and he was talking about his team and he realized one day he had gone out uh, was walking out to his car after doing a critique and uh, he had kind of pulled his punches with the designer and he realized afterwards that he was being disrespectful it wasn't helping anybody for him to kind of pull his punches. So I'd encourage people to be, I mean, you don't have to be a dick. You don't have to yell at people or like tell them they're stupid. Like don't make it personal. But if work's not good, I've seen designers, you know, at Google, for instance, you know, a room of 20 designers sitting around and someone's showing some mediocre work and everyone's like super effort. And you're like, you that's when Berka starts throwing chairs. <laughs> I, I practically, I mean, I tried to do it politely, but I was like, listen, guys, like, <laughs> politely throw chairs. <laughs> I, like, I don't know if I'm eating crazy pills here, but like this, this could, this needs to be better. Like we, mm-hmm. we can do better than this as a team. And like a good, a good effort's not good enough in my book. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if in the end you can't produce it, like I'll fire you. Like let's do some real work together. So 
one of the things you mentioned when when something's right, you said I have nothing to say. How do you balance encouragement with this kind of focusing on getting the problem solved? Right, right. So I'm not. It's not nothing to say. It's like great work. Like I actually mean that. Okay. Like let's. You know, I'm not just like <laughs> I have no oh, good enough. <laughs> and I walk out well, the door. That, that's something a lot of people say. Is like, oh, there's nothing wrong. So, okay. Yeah, I, and I'm bad at this. I, I think this is something I, I've starting to get better at. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I used to only focus on the negative because I was like, oh, you know, you are you know. I, I myself used to think included. That that's people, kind of where I live. Is like this is what's wrong with it. If I don't say there's something wrong with it, it's right. Like, yeah. That's all you need to know. And you, you forget sometimes that, you know, the other designer maybe doesn't know that they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in some ways, I just assume that, like, oh, you know, I think you're good, so you must know you're good. Like, so we can just leave yep. the good part to the side <laughs> and not talk about it. But um, We've covered this, right? Like, But even I like getting compliments from other people. So, like, <laughs> you know, I'm starting to get better at, uh-huh. at um, telling people the positive and the negative. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with giving somebody the shit sandwich, for instance, when you're giving feedback, like do say something positive if there's something positive to say, but don't make up shit. Like you don't have to say something positive if there's nothing good to like. Just, I mean, don't be an ass about it, but like <laughs> yeah. let's talk about the problems. Let's make it better. And in the end, you'll teach them how to be a better designer and you know, feedback will get smoother. Our third clip comes from episode 165, which was like maybe a month or two ago with Lori Kaplan, who did the first macintosh human interface guidelines and she talked about when to to choose the defaults the benefits of using defaults and when to go your own way and kind of leave the norms in order to make something new and special and i thought that was she was like the best person to talk about this thing i mean she she set standards for decades for developers on mac os ios like these are the things we use every day and it was really cool to get to talk to her about it so here's laurie kaplan from episode 165. Going back to some of the obvious stuff, um, do you feel like modern software is still upholding some of those core principles of making things obvious, explaining what next steps are, reducing the amount people have to think? Like, are we doing a good job or... uh, Like, examples come to mind of things that are just hard to do or, like, less recognizable. And I think, for me, iOS has started to go back in some ways, like actually adding borders to buttons and things like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we get too in our own heads. Um, and No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we make things really, we design for ourselves sometimes too much. So we make things really less obvious and we get it. And, you know, I'm humbled and honored that I even can have a conversation with people who I think are awesome designers here and elsewhere that, you know, like I, I'm old, so I don't consider myself part of the we most of the time, but I get it. You know, I use technology. Things are easy for me that aren't necessarily easy for my peers who went off in different fields. Um, and so I think we really get caught up in flat design, material design, you know. It means something to us and we have fun creating it. But then at the end of the day, if the user can't figure it out, we failed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? Can I go back to one thing that you mm-hmm. said about being prescriptive or descriptive? I think that we created the interactive guidelines because we wanted to help people get it at a more core level Okay. that they might not understand reading the text yeah. in a book, right? And so that's why we created those examples to be more descriptive, Mm-hmm. and less prescriptive and give people more license, I think, but understanding in the context of use. 
What was the impact when you published, or when the HIG was published, the Macintosh HIG? Uh, was it hard to sell developers on using this thing? Think of like the current, in the current no, world, the arguments like style guys, right? They couldn't wait to get it. Hmm. They couldn't wait because Apple was the platform to be on if you were a cool developer. Yes, right? it and still is. Cutting edge, mm-hmm. I know. Um, they, cut- they really captured that, like cool. Yeah. Don't know why, but yeah. Um, it's all about the marketing. You know, allure, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnny Ive. What? <laughs> what? No, he's he's the marketing. <laughs> oh, he what lives in the white Johnny space. <laughs> yeah. Oh, white space is your friend always. That's not in the guidelines anywhere, but it should have been. No, I, <laughs> more, white space question I, mark? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I forgot the question. Uh, Developers were eager to jump on this. Oh, what was yeah. the impact? They they couldn't wait to get it yeah. because they all wanted to be on the platform and they all wanted to fit in with what was going on with Apple because it was a way for them to sell their products. And if they could, you know, be part of the Apple Apple ecosystem, it was their ticket to customer acquisition, mm-hmm. right? And so they they wanted to have kind of the Apple stamp of approval. So they needed the guidelines to understand how do I do this, which will then by fiat have the allure of being Apple mm-hmm. or a product for Apple. Sure. Yeah. How how did you think about the impact you'd have on creating like system defaults and explaining to people when's the right time to not use system defaults? How did I think about the impact of that? Yeah. Like I think that goes back to consistency, right? Right, And we had long debates about consistency, right? Um, because it's a core principle of the MHIG, of all HIGs, I think, um, and decreasing that cognitive load. But sometimes you need to go outside of consistency to create a better experience. So you have to weigh... Again, that cognitive load that you're going to create for people of not doing it the way everybody else is doing it and making them think, and what's the benefit of it? Do they get that dopamine rush when they figure it out? And they're like, oh, I get it in this context. Next up, we're going to hear from Vicky Tan in episode number 111, Claim to Fame. Claim to Flame. Claim to Flame. Oh, my God. I can't believe Best I got it wrong. Best episode title. That's so great. It was actually an accident. She told me later on that she did not mean to say that. <laughs> it became the title of the episode, which is great. Um, but Vicky's awesome. She talks in this clip. She talks a little bit about diversity in hiring and how to get into a position where it might be dominated by one specific set of people um, and kind of how to overcome some of those obstacles. So here it is. It says Vicky Tan, comment designer, and then it has a link to your Twitter account. Okay. Okay. Wow. Maybe. Come on. See, <laughs> you got to design your own website because this is your this is ah, your canvas. Say to Vicky do. and have like a dark gray heart on a black background. Done. Um, I'll consider both of those suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I will take Pragmatic. both of your uh, <laughs> critiques into consideration. No, but okay. So if you told me like... You mentioned, like, I don't know why Lyft hired me. If you told me that story for, like, trying to get hired, I'd be like, fuck yeah, people should hire her. Well, it's, I think, as I tell it to you now, it's it's a nice story. But, like, when you're, when you're a hiring manager or even a recruiter and you're looking at all these applications come through, like, that isn't 
That might be nice, but it's not like effective. Like it, it that's not like the best experience person to versus hire. hustle. I don't know. Oof, I pick hustle. <laughs> it depends on the stage of the company. I hate the word yes, hustle, I, but I think it depends. I on don't the know stage. how else to say it. Mm-hmm. Someone who will like do what it takes to get something done. Mm, maybe it's very different. Like yeah. I know a lot of experienced designers who just don't want to do shit. Grit. No. Yeah. Yeah. Determination. True grit. <laughs> so advice to to that hiring manager that's looking at your resume two years ago. Mm. Obviously a strong hire. <laughs> Hashtag strong hire. Like yeah. how do we how do we build a hiring process that isn't exclusive to young new designers but have that hustle for lack of a better word to become good and to learn and they want this. Uh, yeah. But the hiring process just naturally excludes them. How do we solve that? Answer all. <laughs> answer the industry's yeah, yeah, yeah. questions. I mean, so the other part of the hiring process was the exercise. So he saw the interview. We had a phone call. Um, but I still had to do the exercise that every single experienced or not designer does. Um, and so I think there you can show uh, what you're willing to do on the spot like you basically have a weekend uh, at the time it was like redesign lifts uh rating and payment thing we don't do that anymore um and so i just spent the whole weekend trying to do that um and so i think for the hiring managers it's good to have that that barn place you certainly don't want to accept any old person off the street with no experience and and nothing to show for it so one like do you have a portfolio that's filled with at least a good show of effort um and two like Past that, can you do this exercise well, or so it, whether it's an exercise or it's like an in-person problem-solving thing or something? That's like the other half of it because it gives all the new designers a chance because everyone is on the same playing field. There, like we don't give you any assets, we don't give you any ideas. Like you have all the same time, and it doesn't really matter if you've worked at a big company or a small company or a big team or whatever. Like this is just you and your brain, and like the shitty tools you may or may not know. <laughs> so at the time I only knew it. Illustrator and like he The shittiest of tools. I know. I was like, oh. Ugh. But learning on Illustrator makes me a very bad sketch user because, and you guys will hate this, I never use the layer panel. What? I know. What does your sketch file even look like? It looks, I don't know. The layers panel. Rectangle 3,422. <laughs> <laughs> copy, copy, copy. Yeah. <laughs> The way it looks on the artboards is fine, but like the insides are. Oh, Vicky Tan, not a production designer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it, though. It's one of the things that will help me be like a better team designer. Because when someone else works on my thing, they're like, holy. What the fuck? Smoke, this is Vicky's file. Command click all the things. Yeah. But so I think Frank has done a good job of. So our whole team has um, non I would say non-traditional design background designers as a long way of saying it. But like we've got people who studied like econ and, at, you know, I don't know what Mark said, like mechanical, uh, something else. Um, Harrison studied film, but the, no one studied design. No one went to design school. Um, and and it makes for like a very diverse and interesting conversation. Um, and it also makes like it makes the team very approachable, I think, because when I was interviewing at some other startups, um, when you interview with a team of like all guy designers as they t- uh, sorry, all guy design group as they tend to be um, and they all like 
are well known for being designers, um, it's it's a very different feeling than interviewing with a team of like people who are sort of self starters, like taught themselves and and came together that way. It's like the Isle of Misfit Designers. <laughs> yeah. Oh. That sounds negative, but that's not what I mean at all. No. It's, it's more like Captain, Isn't the Isle of Misfit Toys the heroes? I think that's endearing. Yeah. Not, yeah. not insulting. Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? Because I think I'm not trying to give anyone excuses, but it's a little bit of a catch-22 if your design team is all males mm-hmm. and they're interviewing someone. Like how... How does that come across to someone in your position? And also, like, what are steps that a team that, by whatever circumstances, all males, how can they be better about being not not giving off whatever vibe you got, I guess? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, I mean, some of it boils down to just the individuals and, and their attitude. It's, it's not yep. just that the team seems like it's, you know, uh, ego egotistical or has a lot of ego it's that like there actually was yeah on any uh with any individual designer there is some level of like yeah i'm kind of badass and rightly (laughs) so like if they are then you should be um but how can you not like uh there's confidence and then there's like cocky right it's a fine line also also if you're like a, a new designer too you can be intimidating um but like knowing you're good and like like yeah, no, I'm kind. Of, I'm kind of a big deal. Like, yeah, knowing you're good and saying out loud that you know you're good are two different things. And then you throw in the interviewing context where like you're grilling somebody or, or yeah. you're asking them to answer all yeah. these questions. It's very tricky. Um, do you know Ryan Putnam? I do not. Or like Mackie Saturday. I do know him. He's so humble. Yes, but he's like borderline legendary, right? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. so incredibly talented. Yeah. So that that so to answer your question, like that is what. Hopefully you should try to do. I mean, part of it is being self-aware that like, I know I'm good, but like I can't, I might be coming off a certain way. Um, And some of it is just like company culture stuff, like catching yourself when you are saying or doing things that might be offensive to people who aren't exactly like you. And I think that that's what Silicon Valley is going through right now and learning about like diversity and bias and all that stuff. Like, I think a lot of it is like, oh, I just I didn't know that when I um, make like those jokes that someone might be offended because it's just like harmless or seemingly harmless. Yeah, seemingly harmless. Yeah. Yeah. Next up from episode 113 with our good friend Jeff Smith. Uh, We talk about getting out of your comfort zone, imposter syndrome. Uh, One of the the more honest and real conversations we've had. So fun uh, getting to hear Jeff's perspective on it. Uh, Let's get into that on comfort and imposter syndrome. Working on this iOS kit Mm -hmm. with Jeff (laughs) Tehan. Was that tough? Yeah, it's... it's, uh... Well, I wouldn't say it was, from Jeff to Jeff. <laughs> there is the Jeff a funny name. Yeah. Yes. He again has a more unique name than I do. This is, it kills me. Tihan um, is a great unique name. I know. GT. What a lucky dude. At GT. <laughs> Grand Touring. Grand Turismo. <laughs> yeah. Which is I, Grand Touring in Italian. Yeah. I chose the Italian version because <laughs> I'm slightly more cultured. <laughs> <laughs> I, no. Shall peace to Brian Lovin. <laughs> Fuck. I don't know what that means. 
<laughs> I don't know what it means either. I said shroup in a fancy way. Shroupista. Instead of being a shrouper, you're a shroupist. 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 No, that's actually the French-Italian definition of shroup. Okay, anyway. How'd you know that? God damn Did it. Did you study abroad? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think the imposter syndrome that comes along with well, it's actually similar to like how you f- I feel most of the time working at 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 Facebook or any large company for that for that mm-hmm. matter. You have the decisions you're making have a big like impact, and it sometimes feels really inadequate doing that. Um, like, why am I doing this? Who who am I to be doing this? And I think that very signal imposter syndrome in and of itself is a really good sign that you're doing the right things, because if you're not in those sorts of places and if you're not feeling like you're out of place or you're not going to you're not going to make it or uh how who am I to be here then you're not putting yourself in the right place like not taking enough risk or how so like sometimes i feel like i'm just like in the groove and i like okay this is where i'm supposed to be at this time cuz i'm just fucking going yeah like, i feel a little bit the opposite there so that's that's an no, interesting no it's take. interesting wait so can you describe that a little bit more Basically, like if I feel like I like I'm a gear, uh-huh. right? And suddenly I start going really well. Uh-huh. That means I'm in the right groove, uh-huh. right? So, in this metaphor, yeah, sure. But I don't feel like if I feel uncomfortable, I feel like I'm like pushing against something in maybe a not ideal way. But maybe even, I should reevaluate. Even if you're in the groove, right? Even if you're doing what you're really good at, you always want to be progressing and pushing oh, a little bit forward. So I think, yeah, what I'm describing is a bit more in like social, so, like a social context. Um, but I do think that that's like pretty tied to how you grow in your career is putting yourself out there and taking risks. And it doesn't necessarily need to be with people. Mm-hmm. It could just be in the work that you're posting to Dribble or to, uh, yeah, the, the app you're building that feels like you're taking a risk and you're putting yourself out there. Um, I guess imposter syndrome isn't the right way to describe that. But I do think imposter syndrome in and of itself is typically when you get in the that sphere of professionals that you want to, or just in this, a sphere of people that you're around impactful. people that are yeah. going to like improve you if you feel like you have to live, live up to them. Yeah, that kind of thing. I think if you know all the answers to the questions that come up at the job you're working at, that's a sign that you need to like find some harder next higher level problems. Mm-hmm. And that seems like what moves you into. If this you feeling, know the answers to everything, do you even have a problem? You are a god. <laughs> if you know all, uh, but I, th- then I think Kanye. That's, that's the point. Is like people feel get bored like going through the motions and i think that actually even maybe relates to to what you're saying bryn uh i think workflow zen is probably a different thing but at a career level you don't want to be a gear spinning smoothly in place for too long um i think there is a way to to move up and and not uh or to move forward and and change and solve different problems spin other gears you know if that i mean that makes sense a gear that's moving well that has a like a good uh ratio on it is mm-hmm. actually like really fast like crazy fast just want to say that this metaphor is hard <laughs> yeah it, imposter syndrome may not be the right way to describe it but the idea or the act of putting yourself into new circumstances whether yeah whatever that looks like in certain social circumstances it's imposter syndrome and with okay. from a design standpoint it's taking i guess it's taking risks but i think imposter syndrome for a lot of the people i know is like a very common feeling mm-hmm. especially as you're oh, trying totally. to progress in your career and that's been something that i've shied away from and i think it in fact should be something that we sort of 
embraced maybe isn't the right word, but acknowledged as like actually a good thing, you know, a good sign that you're you're taking risks. This next clip comes from our very last episode with John Schlossberg from Even. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot has been understanding when to kind of put pen to paper and actually like try and implement something versus when to stop and think about it and try and make sure you're building the right thing in the first place. And he has this metaphor of a chocolate cup full of chocolate milk that is energy, which I guess is sugar rush. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but if you drink all of your chocolate cup, eventually you just start like removing cup. And that's an interesting metaphor because you can certainly feel burnout a lot. And it's something that I think most of us have to deal with and it can be really difficult. I generally find the episodes where we talk about life advice and not necessarily design advice are super useful Mm -hmm. because this kind of stuff is applicable beyond just your day-to-day work. It's like, this is the way I can think think about side projects. It's the way I can think about hobbies. It's the way I can think about uh, relationships. There's so much more to it than than just the design side of it. Part of this clip is him talking about how costly it can be to context switch. And I think that's something I consider very, very often. It's part of why I took my current job was it, it is now all the same context of building products and talking about products for designers. And that that was a meaningful change in my life. So, uh, Also, I just like the visual of the chocolate cup that you can start eating. It reminds me of that scene in Willy Wonka uh-huh. where Willy Wonka is singing a song and he's drinking some tea and then takes a bite out of the teacup. So per- such we, a we perfect visual. We talk about visual. a different Willy Wonka scene. So that's, that's interesting, yeah. Um, that's the one I thought of too. Yeah. But here's John Schlossberg uh, with... The chocolate cup. The chocolate soul cup. Chocolate soul cup. People ask me all the time, like, what's the difference between a junior designer and a senior designer? And it's like, oh, you want me to distill that into one thing? Sure, I'll, I'll give you a sound bite. The difference is that a junior <laughs> designer will spend 80% of their time uh, doing work and 20% of their time figuring out what work to do. A senior designer will do the opposite of that. They will spend 80% of their time figuring out what work to do and 20% of their time doing the work. Um, and really, the way that you can succeed at that is by thinking critically about what you're trying to achieve, what the pieces of, what, which pieces are important, which pieces are not important, what the 80-20 of it, 80-20 of it is. And what I mean by that is, the 80-20, when I say that, that's the, so there's this concept in thermodynamics called the Pareto Principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, this law says that 80% of the effects of a thermodynamic reaction are caused by 20% of the causes. So like if you can really focus on the causes that achieve the 80% of the results, that's where you should be spending your time because it's just way more uh, leverage. Like you're going to achieve so much more with so much little effort, less effort by focusing on those things. It turns out that the Pareto principle applies to tons of stuff outside of really nerdy thermodynamics. The first principle of thermodynamics. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We could, like the, the Pareto principle applies to everything. It applies to design. It applies to building a startup. It applies to how you should decorate your apartment. It applies to everything. Focus on what matters. Okay, so sidetrack briefly. It often feels like that 80%, either to you or maybe it's something you're putting on people around you that you feel like it's, procrastination hmm say more about that what do you mean like how do you differentiate between i'm not ready to work on that because i'm still processing it and 
I'm not ready to work on it because I want to do something else. <laughs> like I definitely, like, I feel a sense of clarity when I come back to a thing. Like I just need to focus on something else for a while. And that's a part of it. There's also like a practically thinking at this problem for a while, like, and going back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes it just feels like procrastination. Okay. So we're, I'm, I'm going to give you a weird analogy. Perfect. That's really what I wanted. Please answer in form of weird analogy. Um, that's my goal here. As many weird analogies as possible. So one of, this is a theory that I have. Uh, I call it the cognitive energy cup. Okay. <laughs> uh, I swear it's not weird. Um, <laughs> I've so, read your blog, so I know it's coming. Have I blogged about this? No, but you mentioned it once. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so imagine that you, when you wake up, you have a cup, a glass, uh, full of cognitive energy. Everything that you do throughout the day consumes some energy from your cup. But it consumes it depending on the activity at different rates. So like sitting in traffic consumes energy, maybe at a pretty low rate. Uh, solving a really hard design problem, like the, real, the meat of it, like the, the non-pixel pushing stuff, consumes the energy at a really high rate. All the stuff, though, consumes energy, and you have a fixed amount of it. Now consider that the cup... Um, is actually made out of the energy itself, but like a more congealed form of it. Such that if you, if you get to empty, but you keep trying to pull from the cup, you'll actually start to eat the cup. Like a Willy Wonka, you know, like the Willy Wonka candy <laughs> cup where like you drink out of it and then you bite the cup and it's like made of candy. Same thing. Uh-huh. Um, My cup would be made out of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> chocolate milk and a chocolate cup. That's what, that's what this is. Um, but that's really dangerous because if you eat the cup, the cup gets smaller. Yeah. And when you wake up tomorrow, you'll have less chocolate milk in your chocolate cup because your chocolate cup is smaller. Um, and so the reason I'm giving you this super weird Willy Wonka chocolate cup analogy. My chocolate cup overfloweth. <laughs> like you need to understand. <laughs> dude, if your chocolate cup is overflowing, you are in a great spot <laughs> in your life. Or it's just really small. <laughs> don't, firstly, don't let yourself get it to a small cup. If you try to solve hard problems and you just don't feel like it, what that means is your cup is empty. And if you try to work on those things, you're going to make your cup smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden you're going to hate life and you're going to get burnt out. That's what, that's what burnout is, is your cup is really small. So you need to manage your cognitive energy wisely. The hard stuff, when you wake up and your cup is most full, that's when you should be solving those problems. Uh, when you have most cognitive energy, don't force yourself in the afternoon, when you just like don't have the energy, don't force yourself to ha- solve the hard stuff. It's okay to procrastinate, to, to work on the less important, quote unquote, things. Um, but it is important that you use your cognitive energy wisely. And it's important you solve the hard problems because like ultimately at a startup anyway, you know, at, at even when you're, you're trying to solve these really hard problems for these um, people that often you, you can't relate to and you really need to do a lot of research to understand, that's like hard work. It's really cognitive energy consuming work. And so we, we actually like build an organization around this cognitive energy chocolate milk cup principle uh-huh. where like we really set aside mornings, no meetings. Mornings are the time when you're doing this hard work. Mornings are the time where you're solving the hard problems. In the afternoon, if you want to do meetings or you want to like push pixels and like choose fonts and stuff, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's important too, but it consumes cognitive energy at a, a slower rate. So it's totally okay to do that stuff in the afternoon. But be wise about how you use your energy. I just went on another rant. Where are you spending most of one. your, where are you sipping most of your cup these days at even? 
right now, so this is a complicated answer, but so context switching, um, what that means is basically like, um, as a founder of a company, you are doing, by definition, hundreds of different things. You're, you know, designing a landing page, you're talking to a potential customer, you're uh, designing the actual product, you're managing someone, you're trying to recruit an engineer or a designer, you're doing all these different things. Some of those things are really high level. They're like strategic decisions that you're trying to make. Some of them are really low in the trenches. Like, what typeface should I choose for the app that we're making? Or like, what color should this button be? And actually, there's a lot of cognitive energy that's consumed in switching those contexts, going from high level to low level. It's very difficult. Uh, And I wish someone told me this uh, when I first started. Um, But I would say... Uh, believe it or not, most of my energy is consumed, is sipped in switching the context, simply because of how much is demand, how many different things um, are demanded of my time. But I would say that I'm probably spending 25% of my time doing product design, 50% of my time uh, recruiting, trying to find really good people who can tolerate me, mm-hmm. um, and the other 25% on all of the other things. Uh, is there a way to make your cup bigger? Yeah. Don't, firstly, don't don't let it get smaller. That's number one. Number two, like there are some some things that just like fulfill fill your soul. Like I, I use this the term soul in a very non religious way. The soul cup. Yeah, you could call it the soul cup. Soul cup <laughs> of chocolate. Uh, <laughs> and that's the episode title. We that's nailed title. that one. <laughs> uh, soul cup of chocolate. You can make that bigger. Like, uh, it depends on who you are, what really, you know, fills your soul. For me, like, um, seeing musicals live, that's one thing that's like, if that makes my cup bigger so fast. Like, <laughs> if, if I could afford to go see Hamilton, I would like, I'll just write it off as a business expense because that's making my cup huge. We yeah. joked about taking a second A round and the A was Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, don't discount that though. Um, that, that's one thing. Like, for me, playing video games, I'll sit here and admit that to you, that, that yeah, fills my totally. cup up. Um, yeah. and, and you could argue it makes it bigger. What are right? you playing right now? Uh, I play a lot of FIFA. So, um, yeah, FIFA is like a series. That's not even a... I also play play a lot of Civilization. (gasps) Oh, my God. I play the series of games. It's it's so good. Uh, I spent 23 hours in one weekend playing that game. Yeah, it's not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. We burned out one weekend. (laughs) I wish you guys included me on the burnout (laughs) session so we could have some solidarity. Yeah. (laughs) So I wasn't in my apartment feeling really guilty about it. We could feel guilty about it together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we felt guilty together it was pretty bad together separately because he was playing a different game than me (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 Uh, so musicals fulfills you musicals are a big thing i'm a big soccer fan that's something i've grown into um watching soccer fills the cup back up going on walks my girlfriend and i go on walks a lot um fills the cup back up makes it bigger like the way that you make it bigger is by leaving energy in it i would say uh, at the end of the day and that's the just chocolate not, milk congeals and adds that, exactly. You leave chocolate milk out, it gets solid. It's gross, but, but solid. It gets solid. It's, it's gross, because, but it's bigger. <laughs> um, and my, that's just not a thing for me right now. So the cup doesn't really get that much bigger. It's almost like a constant battle to just keep keep it from getting smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, actually. It's when you get it to be really small that you need to do something. Uh, take a vacation. Really go check out for a while. Go live in the woods. If that's your thing. Um, because imagine like waking up with a shot glass full of energy every day. Like it's no one, your work's not going to be good. You don't have enough energy to put to it. 
So don't push yourself beyond what is possible. Um, be wise in how you spend your time. That's the moral of this story, if there is one. This next clip comes from episode 130, Raman UI, featuring Linda Dong. And in this clip in particular, she's talking about, we talk, actually, you know what, we talk a lot about overcoming diversity in general. Um, and this is another clip around overcoming diversity. Uh, but she talks about how she looks at teams in general as a result of some diversity struggles that she went through. And she dives a little bit into those. So here it is with Linda Dong. I'm really curious about the whole travel thing. Mm-hmm. Why? What happened? Why? What Why happened? did you abandon the world that you knew? <laughs> what systems did you abuse to make that happen? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. <sighs> okay. So that question always gets coupled with the question of, like, why did you leave Apple? Um, Do you have a scripted answer? Is this from people outside the Valley, I, have I imagine? I a scripted answer, and I have the dark answer. Ooh, you know which answer I want? And I'm feeling brave enough to say the dark answer. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so you guys are lucky. Yes. Um, so the scripted answer is that, I know, got to tease you first. So the scripted answer is that, again, I said, like, I haven't known anything other than Apple. And it, I think it's important to get, like, in a worldview when you're designing things for millions of yeah, people. So totally. it just totally made sense. Just, like, cut loose and be like, hey, you know what? I want to know what I'm made out of. And this is my time to do it. And I'm going to go travel and see how other people outside of San Francisco behave. Turns out it's totally different. There are huh. people outside of San Francisco? Weird. Yeah. Why would like people live elsewhere? people that don't have, like, iPhones. It's really weird. And the, okay. And then the dark answer is, and it's an issue that, you know, is really prevalent right now in the tech industry, but it's that I was the youngest member of the group. I was the only woman on the group for a really long time. I was the only minority in the group. And that led to a lot of difficulties. And I think that in any group, like it's so important to have diversity, not just to maintain like a healthy work environment, mm -hmm. but also just in terms of quality of creativity and of empathy in design. Mm -hmm. And it was both of those things were lacking on the team that I was on, unfortunately. And so there were some amazing projects and the people were so smart, but you know, at the end of the day, if you don't feel like you're getting treated with the respect that you deserve because of factors other than work and merit, you know, it's and those things don't get resolved in a timely manner, it's probably time to look at something different. Mm -hmm. Totally. That's interesting. It reminds me of it's like if you take a list of the top reasons that people take new jobs or stay at their current job. Um, usually money's up there, but quite often money isn't the number one. Usually it's feeling valued or some sort of internal recognition is more important than making a ton of money or, or whatever it may be. Exactly. Perks and micro kitchens <laughs> and shit like that. And to be fair, I think Apple doesn't do that to the, you know, like degree that you see other bigger corporations do. Like they, they're pretty good about saying you come to work there to work there. Mm -hmm. You don't come because we're going to do your laundry for you. <laughs> what? 
Why would you know, work anywhere guys. that doesn't do says your laundry? Says says for dry boy. cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I haven't used that service because I don't want to carry my laundry around San Francisco. You mean onto the bus and then off of the bus? Yeah, yeah people did that. That was weird. It is weird, right? Uh, how long? How long had you been at Apple until that point? Um, in total, I guess I started. I first started working there as an intern when I was in 2009. And I first became full-time there when I, it was 2011. So whatever arithmetic time. that is. Holy is shit. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> I am like an old person at Apple. I haven't spent like a year at a job here in San Francisco until just now. <laughs> like I just passed I can't a year. even make it a year. Holy shit. How do I ask this? Like obviously the outcome in your dark response probably wasn't ideal dark response dark response the dark timeline but at the same time you you did manage to stay there for four or five years best reference (laughs) best episode of community can you just talk to me a little bit about like what happened in between there so you were there for quite a long time but it ended maybe not exactly how you pictured yeah I I don't know. You know what? It's not like there was like a moment of time where things just like switched and it was like, oh, this is awful. Everything's awful. It was like a, it was kind of like a slow burn where, you know, like the same people kind of ended up hiring like cookie cutter clones of themselves. And it just sort of extrapolated into an environment that was a little bit homogenous and a little bit difficult for someone in my position to uh navigate through okay you know totally yeah that's my very diplomatic response about that that's a a very eloquent way to put it (laughs) like it's it's hard to process sometimes like what led to that thing right so uh, talking about the slow burn and people hiring themselves like i totally get that yeah yeah and i think that's just how it works everywhere where people aren't like remember when Apple released those diversity numbers and it was just like, what? Like, really bad. How? Like, this is so embarrassing. Like, props to actually showing this to the world because it's not great. Uh, and unfortunately, I became a part of that statistic where I found it, I found that those issues made working not as fun. And because of that, I was like, okay, you know what? Let's go travel. Yeah, what did that feel like when they started publishing the diversity reports? That would have been, what, three years ago? Two years uh, ago? Yeah. Pretty recently. Well, pretty recently. I want to even say closer to two years or a year ago. Yeah, I feel oh, like wow. there haven't been many. No, there haven't. And I think the it last was, couple of years were definitely like the, the year of like the numbers, right? Like right. Everyone posted their uh, transparency report thing. Yeah, I think Twitter did it first. Twitter and Slack and Apple exactly. and Google. and Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like when when they published those numbers, like obviously I I didn't even realize that it was as bad as that uh, because I'm in like an insular group within like the rest of the company. And it's like, pretty siloed, right? It like- is. Yeah, it is very siloed. But um, I do think that the correct steps are being made to like make sure that collaboration is like actually a priority now, which is okay. which is really great. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of the diversity issue, yeah, it's it's a it's a hard thing because, you know, you can't ever say like hey, like the projects were bad, like the work is bad because it wasn't. It was super fun, and it's such a bummer that you know that didn't end up overcoming the rest of the stuff. Yeah, 
That is too bad. Yeah. And so now, like when I'm talking with companies uh, to figure out like, oh, like if I could do a part time contract, like one of my first questions really is just like, what's the makeup of your team look like? Like, how is the workplace environment? Because I realize that like no matter how great the product is, it's so much more important to work with great people and make sure that everyone like is in a good mood. What have you noticed when you ask those questions? Everyone really tiptoes around that question. Yeah, I imagine. Like, how do you actually get the truth besides just walking through the office? And That's how you do it. You walk through <laughs> counting, the office. Counting people. <laughs> like, you have two of you. And no. Um, I, I think it's like, you can tell when someone is making up the numbers in order to just make up the numbers. And when someone's just like, you know what, like the numbers are bad right now, but these are the steps that we're taking to make them good. And, and that's meaningful because you know that, that they're trying to grow in that direction at least. So the effort momentum is enough for you to like give a bad diversity scorecard or whatever a pass. I think so. Just because like where we are in the state of things, I think like anyone who is making those baby steps uh, in order to have like a, a more multidimensional team is, you know, probably on the right track and they're going to have a multidimensional team. Yeah. You can't so. just like instantly have like exactly. momentum. That's pretty hard to do. Did you guys read Mike Davidson's post today? I didn't. I read the first half. He wrote a really long post. We don't have to get into it. Was that that giant Twitter storm? No. <sighs> He wrote like maybe? a legit blog oh, post, like no. yeah, five thousand word. It's something about moving to San Francisco. I think was the title. Uh, it was about his time here, but he he actually talked more about building teams and focusing on diversity. And he said one of the his biggest achievements was moving Twitter from I think it was eighty twenty male female to fifty fifty. Nice. The design team. That was pretty cool because I think at least in my interactions with Mike, which have been very few, is that's something he actually gave a shit about and mm. invested his personal time and effort into fixing. And even if Twitter hadn't made it to 50-50, like looking at someone in a leadership position like Mike that truly gave a shit, that meant a lot to me at least. That's awesome. Yeah, very supportive of that. Uh, his successor, Ellen, seems equally awesome. Like, yeah, she's rad. I'm glad Twitter's really focusing on this that. It's going to be cool. Yeah, for sure. This next clip comes from my intern, Brian's intern, everyone's intern, your intern. The world's he, intern, who's no longer an intern. This is back in episode 155. It was shortly before he left to go back to school at Brown in Rhode Island. This was an awesome episode. He's incredibly, I don't know, wise for his age. Is that the, He's very thoughtful, you know? like, And that's a really meaningful thing to have. He was one of my favorite people I've ever gotten to work with. This is one of the few episodes we've had uh, like a self-proclaimed junior designer on the show. Uh, I think we've had a few. So coming in as an intern and sharing his experiences was super helpful and I think added a lot to, to the podcast so that we continue to cover a range of experiences here. So This episode got a ton of positive feedback and I'm so excited that Addy did it because he was very nervous about it beforehand. Thanks again, Addy. Here's episode 155 with Addy Reddy. Duckicopters. Talk to me a little more about like what community means for you because you come out to Silicon Valley and companies with infinite budgets struggle with that mm -hmm. diversity and inclusivity. Um, how have you been thinking about that and how did Hack Brown end up in such a good place? Right. Um, I think I have to preface by saying that I'm the least qualified person to talk about this. <laughs> That's good. patently untrue. My good father is. We reject it. <laughs> um, and I just, yeah, I think the problem is so complicated and there's so many facets to the issue that 
I'm I just don't know enough about it. But that being said, I think the reason so coming into America, coming to Brown for the first time, I my impression of America was that this is the country where everything is right. Uh, it's democracy. It's freedom. Where everything it's, is right. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel now? <laughs> I, I've learned a lot more about the country given its presidential. Yeah, but. You've um, been here for a rough three years, I bud. I'm so sorry you've had to watch this. <laughs> He's happen. literally only been here for this presidential campaign. <laughs> oh, for God's sake! <laughs> <laughs> but I remember in eighth grade for English class, we had to like give a speech, and the speech I chose was Barack Obama's acceptance speech because it was such an inspiring speech. And I really came into America thinking it was the country where everything was right. And then I went to school, and I uh, in com- in the computer science department, I realized you know all the complexities around diversity, around the kind of environment we create, uh, explicitly or implicitly. Um, but everything I've learned about it and all the kind of the guiding principles of Hackett Brown came from our founders, from Molly and Mackenzie. Um, and they are two of the most amazing people that I look up to. And they've taught me so much about life in general, but also about the industry. And when they founded Hackett Brown, they really set, set it out very clearly that we're not trying to be the next big hackathon. We're trying to be the hackathon where beginners and people who've never been to hackathons before can feel welcome and inclusive. And we're going to create a healthy environment where people can learn. And so that's where I guess the seed was planted. And then going from there, becoming more exposed to the different problems, having a lot of deep and introspective conversations within the team around how do we do admissions? Um, At the point when we decided, when we ended up, when we were starting, a lot of the hackathons would screen by resume. And they would say, okay, this person has done two internships, has 50 stars on their GitHub profile. Um, And so it makes sense that we would bring them to the hackathon because we want the most awesome hackers. And I respect that. And I think that's one way to run a hackathon. But for us, that was, you know, an an explicit anti-goal is we didn't want the best quote-unquote hackers. We wanted students who never had the opportunity before to come here and find confidence. Um, So we instead wrote a random admissions algorithm (laughs) <laughs> which would, uh, which was somewhat weighted, and to meet the demographics that we wanted, um, but that helped us, you know, create a more comfortable environment for everyone. Interesting. So you ran it through an algorithm, and it it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it helped. I mean, the algorithms class that we took really helped around optimizations and stuff like that. But uh, there's a series of things that we try to do, and the series of things are all ideas that have come from other people on the team, other people that I look up to a lot, that know a lot more about this than I do. We also happen to be very lucky to have a very active women in computer science group on campus and a new group called Mosaic Plus, which helps URMs in computer science. And what is URMs? Underrepresented minorities. And just having these conversations around the department and the department you know, faculty being very res- respectful of that and actually being actively involved in these conversations was really helpful in opening up my mind. I don't know if I'm going with, off on yeah, a Yeah, no, with that, with that context, mm-hmm. do you feel like having spent some time here in Silicon Valley that we're doing a good job of creating environments where you feel inclusive and like it's beginner friendly? Um, sometimes yes. And sometimes no, there's definitely a lot of good efforts and a lot of smart, intelligent people, people who care a lot about this that are trying to, you know, make a difference. And it just inspires me to, to see them do that. Um, and I try to play a role in the in the ways that I can, but I don't want to be cynical. I want to be optimistic because I definitely see change happening, even in the three years that I've been here. But what sucks? Kind of sucks that grown-ups still don't recognize that certain 
ways of talking can be very offensive and certain ways of representation can be very offensive. Like having a bunch of guys on your website is kind of like not the best idea because, you know, you don't want to project that image. Um, I distinctly remember a conversation on designer news a few months ago. It was, I think it was called Men of Designer News. Oh, for ah, sake. yes. And, this <laughs> thing that Brian posted about. And I don't mean to pick on it because I think there were a lot of good opinions in that conversation. People who were trying to, you know, speak up and say, this is not the way we want to, you know, create a community around this. But I think incidents like that happen and it goes to show that a lot of people don't have the same like degree of exposure to issues around diversity. And I really wish that could improve. And I wish that more people were sensitive about this, more people were, more people would agree on the things that are wrong. People are hard. Well, it's, they're pretty easy to understand though. If they get power or if they derive wealth from it, it's really easy to like keep that thing. You don't want that to change. Like, for example, my my parents are very Midwestern. They're fairly wealthy. And so they don't like they're very Republican because of that. <laughs> they want things to stay in their favor. That's how that works. They're very, very white. They're very like they don't want things to change. It's the incentive structures we create. Exactly. For ourselves and that. The community. I mean, around. money's pretty chill, but when your money comes from like making sure that other people don't get the same benefits you do, or if you think that paying more taxes to support others through welfare or whatever uh, doesn't actually net you a benefit, where, when it clearly does societally, uh, that especially in like rural Minnesota, there's less society to benefit from. Like, yeah, I see why. I just think it's money's wrong. The big one, and I think it seems like it's starting to change. If if anything the conversation's happening more about like what are uh the incentive structures we create around having diverse and inclusive teams Mm -hmm. uh because in the past perhaps it was pretty hard to map this sounds so fucked up but like the value of having a diverse team in terms of business success Mm -hmm. but once teams start discovering that yeah that is actually valuable you're going to build better products from it then it starts to shift the incentive structure although i think I think that's a common argument that does come up is that, oh, diversity is economically valuable because you will create products that aren't just, you know, that don't just fit men. It all They also fit women. But that devalues people. Right. I think diversity isn't, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be championing diversity for the, the sake outcomes. of economic value, but for the sake of diversity itself. We should just simply be recognizing that there is injustice of opportunity of the way we treat people. And as a result, it's almost oppressive to certain communities. And it's simply the wrong thing to be, the status quo is wrong, and therefore the ethically right thing is to improve it, uh, rather than, you know, justify it with economic value. Okay, the next clip we have for you comes from episode number 173, Grammar Different, featuring Lee Taylor. And I think the cool thing about this clip in general is that you get to see the perspective and kind of the shift from somebody who's worked at a bunch of different companies on a lot of different problems. He's no longer chasing companies. He's chasing jobs and projects that have really interesting people that he can work with. And it's a cool perspective. Yep. Yeah, I really like this episode a lot. He has a great personal experience and the way he thinks about next opportunities, but also he shared some book recommendations and general uh, advice for living. So it was an awesome episode. Yeah, I think you'll like it. Uh, so let's dive in. 173, Grammar Different, featuring Lee Taylor. How do you find that stuff? Is it reading papers? Uh, I read a hell of a lot. 
Okay. To, to be perfectly honest. So I, I read a lot just out of sheer interest. So there are papers. Is it mainly books or is it? Because uh, I, well, I always wonder about these psych- psychology books, like how much of it is actual science and how much of it is like pseudoscience. good writing. <laughs> but good writing in itself is also a kind of psychological primer. Yeah. You know, like NLP and using your oh, words sure. positively and all that kind of stuff. Um, I read papers and then I try and find counter arguments, whether it's in a book or in another paper or like even a mm-hmm. Q&A section. Um, I like to kind of check all sources. And then I also like to find people that are kind of innovating in that space or creating new insights and then not only research what they're talking about, but like try and find the uh, track record, like their history. So I'll give, I'll give you a name um, who's kind of big in the UK. I'm not sure if it's in the USA. Uh, it's a guy called Darren Brown and it's Darren with two E's um, who's. Doreen. <laughs> no, that's three it's e's d-e-r-r-e-n see bring got it i've heard this name before oh. yeah <laughs> Darren. it's I'm not, it's not Darren. Darren. it's darren darren God. darren okay um, darren but he he's kind of self-touted mentalist um does magic does um all the psychological kind of influence stuff he's got a few books out there um, not read the latest one yet, but the the previous ones that I've read have just been fascinating in terms of his perspective of all the psychological influences that come in, um, you know, that help him do his job of tricking people and manipulating them and whatever else. Um, but he communicates <laughs> it. That's a really bad job anywhere else. <laughs> it is. Unless you're it, a magician. But, but, you know, those techniques you can then just – build into your i don't know sea of influence uh, and the difference between manipulation and influence is just manipulation is getting someone to do something for you and influence is like encouraging them to do something for themselves it's how i see it anyway okay. and uh he, his techniques and insights into all of it was a real eye-opener to me in terms of just how predictable people are for want of a better word, and then also having that that technique of going, creating that awareness of once you're aware of it, then you can push it back against it and have more of a free choice in whatever you do. We use predictability kind of as a negative word. Do you think that's a bad thing? This is nah, something I think wait, about a lot. Like wait, I wait. think in what context? Because I love predictability. In design. Me too. Well, I love predictability in people. Like uh, when I'm driving, for example, yeah. I want to know where people are going. My goal is to strive to be as predictable as possible. I think that's helpful in society in general. It helps us communicate with each other. Yeah. But we use it as a negative. Oh, you're predictable. You're so predictable. Like, it's actually a strength. No, yeah. I totally agree. So take the driving thing. If you're driving down the road, you're like 99% of what you're doing is predicting that there's an expectation of all the drivers doing something else. Yep. So the times when you have like near misses or crashes or whatever it is, is when something unpredictable happens. Yep. You know, there's heartbreaking, there's a no signal turn or whatever it is. You could also call predictability reliability, right? Like, yeah. It's it's a good thing when you can predict how someone is going yeah. to move. 
Uh, and this is one thing that I tell in a in a lot of the work that I do, especially with um, you know like all the devices and all the touch points and everything else is like design for predictability rather than consistency, because you can't consistency is like a foundation, and then you need to deviate from that depending on the environment someone comes yeah. comes in at. Ooh. So patterns differ per platform. Let's talk about this some more because those two words are like some of the founding principles of the work that i do okay like consistency yep um which just well, means 400 symbols can, can i let me let me define predict, <laughs> uh consistency and predictability in my words and then you can dispute or help me refine my okay my go so for me consistency is um largely visual but it's also the words that we use so um this call to action will always say this thing on every screen uh, so would you say style guides generally maybe but uh, this c- type of color communicates this type of thing. That's consistency to me. And predictability is more about moving between states. So when I tap this, this will happen. If something goes wrong, I will know where to go. If something goes right, I know what will happen. If I see this icon, I know it means this. That to me is predictability, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably build on that in terms of the, there's a bit of an overlap yeah. because there's a mm-hmm. there's a predictability of kind of going into a room or a, like looking on a screen, but go with the the metaphor, but going into a room and expecting certain things to be in certain places, like coming in, in into this place and expecting that there's a kitchen so we can make coffee. That's predictability, but over many different rooms and apartments and buildings and whatever else, the consistency of having kitchens again reinforces that expectation so for me consistency is the foundation of building an environment so it's um keeping that expectation predictable uh predictability is more probably i'm agreeing with you now like more in action you know so but to me it's like a venn diagram yeah, 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 they they overlap or yeah. more like two arrows pointing at each other. Like yeah. they feel like they. In fact, if, <laughs> if I could refine it a little bit more, I think consistency is already there before you interact with it. Predictability is as you're interacting with any environment. Yeah, so yeah, the same like thing over different time spans. Yeah, yeah. All right, I can work with that. Okay, it's like every time you buy something on Amazon it's predictable like you know you're going to get your thing in two days like every you're single for time it. but the consistency is to me the button that says buy now with one click or something like that consistency helps me predict mm. what's gonna happen. i don't know yeah i did that like five times last night god i love that one click button <laughs> that damn button <laughs> spending all my money there, there are too many shopaholics in this city honestly i <laughs> i kept going david malpasses place yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to his apartment like four times, and every time there was a, a like five boxes. From How do you Amazon. think Amazon stays in business, man? <sighs> they trademarked it, didn't they? <laughs> oh, whatever it, they did, just the one-click buy—it's crazy. It's crazy. That was episode one hundred seventy-eight. Thank you to all of these guests who took part in it, and thanks to Wayno for sponsoring this entire year. We couldn't have done it without them. Once again, Wayno is a full-service agency here in San Francisco made up of some of our favorite people. You should go follow them. They're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Dribbble. All of those links are in our show notes. Uh, but more importantly, go check out their website. That's Wayno.co, U-E-N-O dot C-O. Uh, they have inspiring case studies 
work that you can learn a lot from. And they're also hiring. Scroll to the bottom of their new website and they're hiring product they're, designers. They're sick new website. <laughs> they're beautiful new website. They're looking for designers here in San Francisco and in New York. And if you are a younger designer looking for an internship, they're looking for a 2017 design intern. Uh, once again, that's at ueno.co, U-E-N-O dot C-O. Thanks once again to Wayno for sponsoring this episode. See you next week. Do you have to do that? You got it stuck in my head.